and it's been what is, what do you say about 40 years <laughs> yes it probably has yes it has you, yes. you sound surprised god don't put it like that down Bruce. <laughs> <laughs> no, I do so it went it went quickly <laughs> uh Welcome to today's show, and our guest is wine industry veteran Charles Withington. Charles started his wine career working at Rustenburg. Welcome to the show, Charles. Hi, I'm quite a privilege to be, be <laughs> to have talk, talking to you, and thank you for the opportunity. You sounded quite surprised when I said that you've been in the industry for more than 40 years. Uh, does it feel? Doesn't it feel like forty years? It doesn't actually. I think uh, the industry is pretty tough at the moment, and I think there's some some not so comfortable things just general. But I mean, the industry generally has been has a remarkable bunch of people one interacts with, and I talk about worldwide, and and it's a it's 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 different. There's a lot of uh, I think. Synergies and mutual understandings and all the rest. We don't sort of sort of fight each other at the coalface and things like that, which is great. And I think that's what makes it generally people enjoy being in the wine industry. Yeah. So my background is is the beer industry and the world of beer, although it's closely related because it's also alcohol and we have the same customers, is is a completely different world to the world of wine. So it will be very interesting for me to hear how how the world of wine works and especially those big south those big wine estates in the cape and how you send your wine all over the world and i think the biggest thing for us is always that you only harvest once a year whereas a brewery or a, or a distillery can work every single day of the year so people can just make as much as they can sell whereas you can only make what you can i guess I think the diff- the difference with wine, which you know, you've just made you reflect on you being in beer and all the rest. The difference with wine, I think, in fact, is that wine is generally a shared drink, um, and obviously the tie-in with food and wine. But very often you're opening a bottle of wine. It's a different drink to an individual drink, be it a beer, be it a be it a brandy or something else. And I think also the way one does business, there's also more of that sort of understanding of a sort of togetherness and. Uh, yeah, I don't know. There is that is the, the, the what the wine industry has. Okay, and what was your role at at Rustenburg, and how did you end up there? I ended, ended up weirdly there through uh, through through uh, knowing the farm for, through a connection. Um, I started off, funny enough, as assistant winemaker at Riche, but then more and more there was a, a bent to move on to the business and the marketing side. And uh, we worked there together for 20 years. Uh, it was a, a, a great experience, not only in, in just the ethos that the Barlows had of producing a fine product. I think the links they already had in the market, Reg Nicholson had been producing wine for uh, for 20 years before that. In fact, Rustenburg was probably the lo- longest continual wine producing estate had been doing close on a hundred years in the, in, in the 1970s. <laughs> and so it was, it, it was well linked overseas, but remember also in that time we're in a time of sanctions. And so there was, a, there weren't those great overseas links, but we had them. And in fact, the first visit of the masters of wine from England, and I 
stand corrected, I think it was 1976, they came to Rustenburg. And that was an amazing uh, bunch of people. And, and that was hugely important for one's journey through the industry. Yeah, it sounds super fascinating. And one forgets those those days of isolation and not being allowed to do business overseas. Um, so the market for, for your wines in those days, was that typically the UK or where did you export your wines to? Overseas was not big in any form. Okay. And, and, and speaking for Rustenburg, the agency, we had an agency with uh, Avery's, very well-known well wine merchant in Bristol. And literally Avery's at some stage in the bad days was getting hate mail for stocking South African wines. So most of the sellers' was, work was through Cellador, and, um, and that was, again, relatively small. But it was the pioneers of the wine route. And funny enough, Rustenburg wasn't on the wine route, but it was, uh, I think it was Franz Malan and uh, Neil Joubert from Speer and Spatz Sperling who yeah. really got wine going in terms of the public drinking and exploring wine. Yeah, for me, that was certainly one of the first wine estates I ever visited in the late, I think it was late 80s when I was a student, we traveled, we did our first trip to the winelands and we ended up with Spatz, um, I guess because, <laughs> because we could speak German, he took interest in us and we, we drank all his noble late harvest because we didn't know any better. <laughs> yeah that label i remember <laughs> so just explain the concept of the cellar door which obviously is similar to what the what the beer people are trying to do with their tap rooms i guess yeah and, and just give us an idea how much wine is actually sold at cellar door well, uh, the cellar door one should actually include those days, which was called mail order, which is like online now. Yeah. And if the, the good estates acquired good mailing lists, and Rustenberg was particularly successful uh, in, in doing it. We sent wine all over the country. And, you know, the, the key was to have those customers in the, the fashionable parts of Johannesburg in those days, Hyde Park and Park Town. And, you know, when they had dinner, they knew how to drink wine. And um, so so a lot of the, mark, uh, the, the marketing was done um, that way. And funny enough, a lot of it was sent using the South African railways. You'd drop the wine at the station, be delivered to Johannesburg, and someone would get it. Another incredible pioneer of that, was, funny enough, was uh, Sydney back at Baxburg. Mm. And he really was the father of mail order in South Africa. And his trick was to find all those people who lived in Carolina, Hendrina, and the Platteland, God knows where else. And he'd mail order them and established very strong customer relationships uh, with people all over. Isn't that fascinating? And we think with uh, modern-day e-commerce, we, we're the first and nobody's ever done it before. But there you, there you have it. Sydney Beck did it way back when. Yes, exactly, yeah. Imagine if he had Facebook and he could do his Facebook marketing to Kimberley and Uppington and, um, as you say, Carolina. Yeah, that was Carolina Free State, not Carolina USA. <laughs> I think it's in Pumalanga. <laughs> that was in Pumalanga, okay. Wherever it is. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. So, so you you were then working as in the marketing of of Rustenburg, I, I gather. Well, I was sort of the business manager. Etienne yeah. and I were worked closely together. We've remained great friends ever since. And Etienne was, again, one of those remarkable South African winemakers. And not only did he do great wines, but he had a humility about him. Etienne could talk to anyone about wine and in a very understanding and open way. He never was sort of full of himself. And there's still quite a few of those around. There are, you know, people look at the Neil Ellis's, look at the Johan Milans and people like that who are just soft-spoken, sincere people who know an incredible amount. And it's only in casual conversation you suddenly realize how much they know and how much you don't know. Charles, tell us a little bit about the, the trade in those days. What was that like? Uh, trade was was bizarre in the sense that um, very few people, everything had to go through the KWV. I can't quite remember how it all worked, but every all contracts, everything had to theoretically go through their books. Very few people had a wholesale license to supply the trade. But Rustenberg, funny enough, had one. I think three people had one. But other than that, the trade was, uh, you had to go... Um, it, it wasn't easy. There are a couple of big merchants, but I can't really recall exactly how the smaller trade got their wines. But a lot of the smaller trade, you you could supply through. You just had to do some form of contract system with the KWV. You didn't hit the road and go calling on, on bottle stores and ship ship the wine there? No, Rustenberg didn't. No, didn't do that much. But oh yes, I'm sure if you speak to the fellows at Stellenbosch Farmers Winery and ever, they all drove valiance and they all. There's nothing, you know. There's never. There's always been someone going out there flogging wine. But yeah, no, we didn't like that. Um, but I'm trying to work out that when the when the legislation changed and the trade opened up, and of course that was the advent of. I think the legendary, probably for your time, Benny Goldberg in Johannesburg was a legend. That was the first big ever retail store you had, and it had an incredible range of wines. In fact, Michael Fridgen worked for them at one stage. Okay. Worked for Benny. Um, so, so bear bear with me. So, can you tell us how the wine actually ended up in the in the bottle stores in Joburg? Was it through SFW? No, no, we didn't go. We Rustenburg didn't go through a wholesale. Every, most of all the farmers, whatever they sent up to the bottle stores in Johannesburg, they were, they railed up. You could supply direct, but there was a funny contractual system okay. supplying to the trade. Okay. But you, you know, you dispatched everything by rail. You, you know, you whether if it's a hundred cases, just took it to the station, chucked it on the train, um, and uh, so that it was all direct, uh, direct trade. And then, of course, there were some major wholesalers in Johannesburg. Wholesale was quite big, um, and Johannesburg was very much the market. I mean, the other interesting part of the market was the Portuguese market. Yes. Um, a lot of Portuguese wines were being sold in, in Johannesburg then, and some, some big um, wholesalers. Wholesalers were big; they don't hardly exist anymore. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's it's hard to imagine that the railway worked. Yeah, everything. Fresh oysters would come up <laughs> fresh oysters. from Leicester. They'd put them on the passenger train, and you'd get them in Stellenbosch. They'd wrap them in seaweed. And I mean, the the Karoo farmers would put their children on the train. They just wouldn't use a goods train. They'd put their children on the train and send them to school. I mean, <laughs> I think we have to move on to a younger generation of, of discussion on this. But I, you know, yeah, they were incredibly functional. Nothing was ever stolen. And occasionally there'd be a breakage, but it was brilliant. It's brilliant. Yeah. And I, I wish we could get back to that. 
<laughs> yeah. So Charles, let's let's get back to your story. So I went to Rusburg. I did 20 years at Rusburg. Then yeah. Betty and I left more or less the same time. I'd been approached by Baxburg, um, and that was in the last few years of Sydney back before we died. And so I went and spent uh, five years at Baxburg, which was a, a very interesting uh, run. Uh, it was a different, very different to Rusburg. Highly successful. Did some remarkably good ones exported a lot. And of course, that is when exports really started opening up around 2000. Okay. Uh, and, and that was a, a, a very interesting time because everyone wanted South African wine. Um, and yeah, uh, it was it was easy to sell wine. Um, and and uh, there was a lot of interest. I think, unfortunately, if we look at how we were, then I think possibly one of the things we did wrong and, uh, in, at that stage. I don't mean me, Baxberg. I mean probably the, the bigger producers or, or the marketing. Is we put a lot of lesser wines on, into the overseas market, specifically England. And we were very successful in supermarkets, and everyone said, wow, that's great. And we even had this guy, this promotion of um, where there was export incentive money to promote the brand. And so we became very successful in supermarkets, but it did nothing for our brand. Even now, South African wines, you take the, all the South African wines as a whole basket, and you look at the price we are achieving in, in the UK market, we're second or lowest price we're getting. We've never, we never started off on a high perception of price. We're getting a lot better now mm. with... Uh, uh, and, you know, and the whole thing was volume-based. There would be export incentive volume. So, yes, it was important. We sold that wine and we got our shelf spacings and we were in Morrison's and heaven, Tesco and heaven knows else. But I think we lost um, in brand build. Yeah. I think the other thing that we realized in our naivety is during sanctions – you know, wine travel was easy, and we there were the links with wine producers remained throughout bad or good times. So you could always talk to overseas people, and if people went overseas or wine makers, they'd come back and they'd bring back a whole lot of wines and you taste them. And we'd taste a cloudy bay and say, "Yeah, that's it. That that asparagus. That that is what we need." And you taste a big Shiraz and say, "Wow, that's what we need." Those Australian Shirazes, they're hitting the market and succeeding. And that's when we so when we first went in the export market, we were, we didn't realize it, but I think we're a bunch of wannabes. We yeah. really said, well, that's what we have to make, and we will make it, and because that's what the market wants. And um, even at one stage, we even flavored some Sauvignon Blanc, I think. And mm. it is only now, probably in the last fifteen years, that we've got more and more great winemakers. Well, we've always had great winemakers. Is saying, hold on, we do not. Well, we aren't an Australian Shiraz. We aren't that. We are what we are, and in certain areas we can produce this, or we do a lot of blends, and got that confidence of saying, you know what, this is our style and this suits us. And I really believe to a certain extent when Mandela freed, freed, free, was free, he actually freed our mindset a lot, that we were proud of what we did and we didn't have to become a, a, a wine, wine producers of imitation. And if you look now, we certainly aren't. We are really producing throughout individual wines with story, with character, and with a very high quality. 
Yeah, I'm glad to hear that because it's. I mean, I can I can feel the emotion of of those early years when you were allowed to travel and you felt. Uh, I think uh, the South African self esteem was was very low, and we didn't believe in our own story. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, so, so Baxburg was five or six. Yeah, and that was good. It was uh, interesting at that stage. Funny enough, Silador was still at its peak. You, the trailers. The Fenter trailers would be the leading sellers on the wine routes. He wants a Baxberg. I don't know. All the, well, the, the big ones would have cellar doors. Uh, Simons Flares would have Fenter trailers going down the drive over Easter. And that's uh, then I left Baxberg. And I, um, when I was at Baxberg, I started doing the export for Neil Joubert, um, which was an interesting producer because they were right next to Baxberg. And um, they've always produced great wines, no flash, nothing, you know, just good, solid, down-to-work, fourth-generation vineyard people. They're very much vineyard people. Mm. And their link into Europe came, funny enough, by Baxberg or by the KWV, who were looking for an estate sizable enough uh, to, to produce some volumes for the UK market. And remember, the KWV under a company called Edward Cavendish had an established UK market. And so then I've, and since then, I still do the export for Neil Joubert. That's my main, one of my main core things in, in my, what I do. Okay. And, um, uh, and they grew into that market as from newcomers in the new, in the new generation. Um, and, and so that, that took, that's been a, a success, success story of their journey into England and then into Europe. What does that role involve? Literally, that's, I wouldn't say brand creation. You have your brand, but it's literally growing those markets in whatever segment, be it supermarket, be it on consumption, be it off consumption. And again, working closely, very closely with your importers. And probably I think in that, you also realize in that role, you actually know why the good Lord gave you two years and one month. Yeah. Because you're really going to listen <laughs> to what they need and try and make it happen. That doesn't mean you're going to make a pineapple wine because they want one. But in the, just in the difference where they want things done, they, they want this done. And you realize the high degree of, of just sophisticated logistics. Just sophisticated, you have to do things. You're in the real world now. They're no sort of mark a plan with Bloderat. <laughs> and... These importers typically do they do a lot of different uh, represent a lot of different farms or countries. Um, import it's fascinating to see what importers they vary considerably um, from the top end where they really have select South African estates, but select wineries from all over the world. And those are your real sort of top-end importers. Then you will get some specialist importers um, who will focus more on certain countries or whatever they might be and uh, be very efficient in um, in certain segments. I mean, one of the biggest importers in the older days, a fellow called Simon Halliday, had a, had a company in England called Raisin Social, and he was 
brilliant on on supermarkets from the Tesco's as as does and heaven knows what else. Right now, um, I I think they're still going, but uh, is that's changed completely. So it really depends of the product you have and who sees and and the market you you hope you can go to or want to go to. Yeah, it's a it's it's a specialist at all levels. Okay, there's nothing casual about it. Yeah, so so you you match up the type of importer with the the, the type of product that you're trying to sell, and if you translate that right up to today, I can guarantee you most good English importers are probably getting at least one or two queries a week from a South African producer looking for a place in the market. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how many people we have trying to export. Probably four hundred. Um, and uh, it's not easy to find a good import. It's not easy to find an importer. Yeah. And when when did uh, the export to countries in in the east like China and that start? China. I first went to China. I was looking at probably about twelve years ago when China first opened up, and it was good. I think people did well. And we so this was with Neil Jaber. Uh, we sold. Um, Good, good wines, good pricing. It's China was great, uh, and then I consulted for some uh, someone exporting to China with other things as well. Which Neil Jubei was part of that portfolio, and it was people did very well in China. Um, I'm not a China exporter. I was funny enough just doing a shipment now for Neil Jubei, a small one of top end wine. But generally, I would say the Chinese market has changed dramatically. It's tapered off dramatically. Um, if all you have to do is look at the export figures, which you'll get from Vinpro, and see where China is now on the scale where it was five years ago and where it was 10 years ago. It's lower in price, very much commodity, other than absolute key topic in brands. The only, there is there a glimmer hope of China now, because China has just given... Um, Australia a bloody nose. Yeah. Um and that does give us hope. And when when did the the local trade change from being controlled, I guess, by KWV and, and those guys to to being able to service the markets locally or directly? Oh, that was yonks ago. I mean we're literally KWV, we're probably talking 30 years ago, yeah. Yonks, uh, they, 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 that changed out. And then the market just changed. Uh, uh, and, you know, I think we all know this, the small specialist or the small retailer, the small little so-called bottle store you had in, you know, Berea Road, Durban or wherever, he's gone to all intents and purposes. It, it, it's through supermarkets and it's through um, – uh, through multiples, uh, tops at Spa being by far and away the most successful of the whole lot. So the little wine retail and specialist wine shop has a hammering, but that's <laughs> the darling wine shop's different in a different way because we've literally area focused and product focused. Um, but your specialist wine shops are challenging. The Norman Goodfellows in life will always do well. They've been there long enough. They they're astute they have good products yeah in the speciality areas or in the tourism areas i think the the speciality wine stores still work like hermanus and darling yes well hermanus you mentioned hermanus it has um 
Uh, I've just forgotten its name. A br- brilliant place uh, down in Hermanus, the bottom of the wine village. Wine village. Yeah, they are brilliant. They have an incredible range of wines. They have great knowledge. They're proactive. They'll do tastings. They'll do all the rest. So those are, uh, you know, those have become a destination, and those shops will uh, will survive. Um, but as I say, the little liquor license you had in the main road that wherever is not, not going to happen. Yeah, it was all changed by Ray Edwards. We were just talking about it yesterday. When did you start your wine shop? Well, I'd had it. I'd had a, I've always been doing a wine for 20 years. Um, funny enough, it went through Avery's in England for a long time. Yeah. And um, tied in with a probably a legend in the wine industry, a fellow called John Avery, who's now deceased, one of the English MWs, who knew South Africa well. Um, and then I thought I was living in Darling and thought, you know what, if I had a wine shop, I could do that. And so I went to the Darling producers and said, it's very simple. If I open a wine shop here, because I had a license and all the right thing, open the wine shop here, it's very simple. If it's just my little wine shop, I'll get 100% of 20 people. If we put all of Darling wines in one place, I'll get 20% of 100 people. And I'm not an instead of your wine farm. I'm an addition to. I'm The wine, Darling wine shop is for people who like wine, who want wine, who want a range of wine. They want the range of wine in the areas, but they aren't going to drive in five directions or they haven't got time. They happen to be in town and they want to pick up some decent wines. And, they, and the nice thing is they can get um, a whole selection and they can have in that shop the knowledge of each and every wine farm. Uh, and so it's not a case of just, you know, buying a bottle of wine. They can really explore. And for the producers, it's worked very, very well. We have a very good working relationships. And we build the brand very often. The first sale might be from the wine shop and the next sale would be directly from them. It's all about building the Darling brand and creating something special in, in the area. When did you move to Darling? I don't know, about 14 years ago. Okay. From, from Baxburg, uh, I, I lived in Stellenbosch and Paul all my life and then moved to Darling. Okay. As a retirement plan. No, no, no. It was a <laughs> plan of reality. Charles Bax comment about Darling Vineyards and Swatland. He said the Swatland guys always wanted Darling Vineyards, but they were too expensive. So they went to the Swatland. <laughs> I went to Darling because it was cheaper to buy a house than Paul. Um, <laughs> but incidentally, the interesting thing on Darling, though, is the uh, – amount of darling grapes that are sold out to leading producers. Probably 60% of darling grapes are sold out to to Stell's a big buyer. A lot of the big names buy a lot of their fruit from darling. And you ask yourself, someone like Charles Back has 140 hectares in darling with 14 different varieties. So it's an amazingly uh, range of very interesting varietals growing in darling. And uh, for me, interesting is, is obviously the little brewery that that has popped up in Darling. Oh, Darling Brew. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, it's now it's, it's a big brewery because, in <laughs> fact, they were right next door to the wine shop and started up by a charming couple uh, called Kevin and Philippa Wood, who you probably know. I do know. And, um, yeah, it was a great uh, – the brew added a huge amount to Darling. Yeah, mm. it's – it's, but you know more about beer than me. I think if the wine industry is challenging, the beer is <laughs> pretty challenging too. It is challenging. Um, 
But it it also brings people to the town, I guess. That we're finding interesting when there are events or when the flowers are coming out now. It'll be it will do it'll be good for us. It really will. But otherwise, it's much quieter because people aren't traveling. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about your 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 own brands um, and in particular the the concept of a furkamer. I see that you call your brandy a furkamer brandy. That where does that concept come from? What what does that word mean? Okay, we'll go. We'll we'll do my brands, which are very small, but they all have a story. And okay. I think we must do. And I'll tell you about Furkama, but we must do brandy. Cape brandy is a separate discussion. That's an amazing product, an amazing. Uh, there's a whole lot of very interesting stuff there. Okay, in a nutshell, I have for years when I John Avery was alive and I exported England, I did simply a Withington Shiraz Cabernet. Um, and when John died, and uh, that was part of that brand that sort of went. Not that he had any financial involvement. It was just a great friend and a great thing to do. So I actually culled it and always wanted to do a own blend or a own blend with Sinzo because my years at Rustenburg with Etienne, we always had Sinzo as one of the blending components of what was then the Rustenburg Dry Red, probably one of the most legendary blends in South Africa. Yeah. And so I created this uh, this Rhone blend and then thought, what do I call it? And um, uh, so Rhone, obviously, you can't use the RH Rhone because the EU will get onto you. So I used Rhone, the phonetic word Rhone, and roan, in uh, for those who know about horses, uh, a roan is a particular horse with particular markings. Yeah, it doesn't change color. It's uh, and so that made sense. So I did roan, roan, and that's why. Uh, and then I just had a normal label. And I was working with a very interesting lady who did the design, and she said, "Well, I've got something that's totally different because you're talking about horse. Why don't we do this?" And I don't know if you've seen the roan ranger label. It's very unusual. It's a striking image of a man and a horse. And, in fact, was run up to Best Label of Award in South Africa five years ago. And so it's gone down well, that wine. People love the imagery, uh, both locally and internationally, and um, the story and this lovely blend of Sinzo and Grenache. It's soft wine, but yet it's got a, yeah, it's got a whole lot of, it's got a lot, lots of flavor to it. Um, but, I mean, that sounds all big deal. But if I do 2,000 case of Rain Ranger, that's the size of the brand. It's not big at all. Okay. Then the other one I do is the Malbec. Malbec is an interesting saga in South Africa. It is less than half of 1% of all plantings in South Africa. Um, and there is seven hectares of it planted in Darling on a farm called Oranjefontein, belonging to a very good wine farmer, a fellow called Andre Kirsten. And that is the basis of the Malbec. It, it is weird uh, in the sense that in England, or in London specifically, Malbec has been the fastest growing wine in on consumption for three years in a row. And literally, Jane McQuitty in the Sunday Times earlier uh, last year, wrote that it's kicking dust in, in Cabernet now. All comes from that is Argentinian Malbec. 77% of the world's Malbec now comes out of Argentina. They have really captured it, making great Malbecs. 
And so um, that's why I did the Malbec. And the, the label of the Malbec, uh, it's actually called Tongue in Cheek and Goonie uh, because we have those lovely Goonie cattle yeah. in Darling and it's Goonie cattle on the front. Okay. And then the Fuhrkama brandy, part of my saga post-Baxburg, I was returned by a crowd called Southern Cape Vineyards who down and had buried dead and Ladysmith distilleries. Uh, to, to, to just do marketing, some marketing things. And I first got to learn about brandies. I won't go into the detail of Cape Brandy in that, but when you see the brandy that comes out of Barrydale and Ladysmith, you realize you're in a totally different animal. You're dealing with world-class. And that hence got me onto a brandy of my own, which I don't distill myself because... I don't have a big still and a sophisticated one, but from then on, the maturation, the wooding and all the rest, I do in conjunction with the distiller. Furkama is an Afrikaans expression. In Afrikaans houses, and uh, uh, I mean Afrikaans speakers of all races in that sense, there's normally, even in a humble house, there's a little furkama. It's a front room. And that front room is where you receive guests. And even to your humble house, if the Dumini came to visit or someone, you'd entertain him in the Fuhrkama. Oh. There's also a story in the Fuhrkama, not a story, it's true, that if your daughter was um, had a young boyfriend and he wanted to come and visit her, then uh, mum would make, leave them both sitting in the Fuhrkama and they could sit and chat. And she would light in the, in the old days what was called an opposite curse. Yes which meant she'd light a candle the length determined by how much she thought of the, the boyfriend. <laughs> and when the candle went out, he knew it was time to go. Okay. Um, so, so that was the story of Furkham. Yeah, it's not big. The brand's a 1,000 bottles probably a year. It's got a, a seven-year-old. It's an XO uh, quality. And, uh, yeah, I believe a Cape Brandy has to have an Afrikaans name or, or something like that. It has to have something about us because we produce such good brandies. Yeah. And, and you, I see on your, on your social media you talk about wine tasting in the Voorkamer. Uh, we have a Voorstuk. We have a whole that's project the one. called Voorstuk. Yes, and we do our tasting on the Voorstuk. Yes, we do one. everything on the Voorstuk. Yeah. But then the idea of the gin came – with something that you could do, a very interesting plant called Kuku Makranka, K-U-K-U, Kuku Makranka. And Kuku Makranka is legendary in this part of the world as well. The old folk believed in it, that you it was medicinal, it, it fixed everything. It, if you were bald, you had Kuku Makranka. If you had excess hair growth, you had Kuku Makranka. <laughs> You constipated, you had it. If you had diarrhea, you had it. <laughs> but it's, um, and they used to put it in their cupboards in the little house. They'd put a cucumber plant. There'd be a lovely smell in your cupboard. But anyway, and so no one tells you where it is. It's like sort of looking for mushrooms. No one tells you where they are. You're going to find them. And concentrated, it isn't particularly nice test. It's unless you feel you need medicine. But if you do a subtle infusion of kunkamakranka, it's there's just something magical about it, whether it's psychological, but um, and it's so much part of this place. And so we just wanted a gin that had these subtle kunkamakranka backing to it. But 
we also realize that people are far more versatile and adventurous than they were 10 years ago. Give them a nice base gin and they'll think of all sorts of things to put in it or to add from a gooseberry to a raspberry to a bit of cucumber to whatever. And, and felt that that's, there was a place for that. And so that's where Darlington is. But it's not big, 2,000 bottles a year, the brand, 3,000 bottles. Charles, tell me, how, how is your online or your e-commerce business working? I see you're quite active uh, promoting your, your products. E-commerce is, is interesting. It's in, after the first lockdown, it was, it was great. Or be, well, not here before it. Yes, well, we didn't know about the first lockdown. And after the first one, it was great. After the second one, a lot of orders. People really piled into it. Now that's calmed down uh, quite a lot. I think people will, and there's a lot, it's no secret, we all know there's a lot of wine around. I think a lot of people are taking advantage and ducking into the NBS, the nearest bottle store, where there's a <laughs> big stack of something going at half price. And, and so I think there's a lot of that lessening. Um, but the core people maintain and that is growing so if you know if you went from a base of of 10 and you moved your base after lockdown to 50 we're now down at 20 or 25 let's put it that way if you can imagine it Mm. and those are people who are we like to believe we give very uh, very uh, quick service very much a personal service you aren't buying from some random dude online um, you know, we'll we'll interact with you if you want to know something. We'll speak to you. We'll it's it's a personal service just delivered delivered to you. And the other nice thing is people can really explore darling wines. And uh, and so, in other words, if you buy twelve wines, there could be twelve different bottles. You don't have to pay per minimum of six or whatever. Mm. Uh, you can mix and match as you wish. So in that end, people are finding exciting because they can explore. Okay. Um, and I think right now we need a bit of excitement. We do. And we need, uh, yeah, I think you're right about the NBS. Everybody's ducking and looking for specials. There's not much money around. But certainly I think that Darling is well situated as a, as a destination and people will continue to travel there. And I, I really hope that you, yeah. you, your little town gets very busy soon again. Thank you. We we certainly need those feet come spring. Yeah. Um, Charles, I think what we what we need to do is then just make another little time and we we talk a little bit about Cape Brandy and uh, how you got involved with it and uh, what what that is all about. Brilliant. I'd like to do that. Be be very interesting. Yeah. Thank, thank you. You obviously have uh, been around the block, maybe not so many times, but <laughs> have a depth of knowledge in in the industry and and the broad industry, especially if you've done beer. And that's always great um, talking to someone who uh, understands the, the type of market, the type of product, and most of all, the type of challenging challenges. And and so I appreciate um, being able to talk to you. Thank you, Charles. And we'll catch up soon again. Go well. Okay. Cheers for now.